So hello everybody and welcome to our State of Governance webinars. It's just absolutely lovely to have everybody here from all over Australia. And I'm going to be so excited to talking to our panelists today and we're going to hear all about their experience and the State of Governance. First of all, I'd love to introduce Michaela Dreiberg. Michaela is the Strategy and Engagement Director at the Victorian Health Association. Big welcome to you, Michaela, and a big welcome to your exciting role at VHA. It's going to be fantastic working with you. I'd also like to say a big welcome to Joanne Morford. Joanne is the Executive Director of the Australian Centre for Healthcare Governance. And we just love working with Joanne. And welcome back, Joanne. Joanne's been away and she's going to tell us all about what she's been up to. And a very big welcome to Julia Cookson. Julia is also working with the Australian Centre for Healthcare Governance and VHA and is also one of our expert conveners. So overall, we're going to have a really interesting discussion today with our panellists. And we're going to talk about the issues of boards in aged care, health, community health, and the human services sector. And I think you'll all agree that there's a lot of similarities amongst all of them. And these similarities can be applied to all sectors. There's also some differences. And quite frankly, I can't wait to hear about all of these things from our panelists today. So Joanne, let's start with you. Joanne, welcome back. We've really missed you. And we'd love to hear about your experience with the Aged Care Task Force, your lessons in governance and, of course, crisis management. Thanks, Fee. Hello, everybody. Yes, I was seconded to the Victorian Aged Care Response Centre in August last year. And it was basically, as Fee said, the task force that was set up to deal with the crisis in aged care with the outbreaks of COVID-19 during the second wave that hit Victoria. So in Australia, we had approximately 214 residential aged care facilities that had an outbreak of COVID-19 and 208 of those were in Victoria. So we had a particular problem in our state. We had over 5,500 staff and residents that tested positive for COVID-19. So it was a substantial impost on the particular sector. And in Australia, we've had 678 deaths that are related to aged care. So that the large proportion of deaths in Australia have been in our aged care sector. So in August 2020, I got a call and asked to go and be part of the team that had been put together to deal with the crisis. This was a team that was of Commonwealth and state representatives, and we had a whole range of clinicians, we had bureaucrats, we even had a substantial uh, number of Australian Defence Force personnel that were there involved in the crisis response. And at the peak of the pandemic, we had over 200 people that were dealing directly with residential aged care facilities and supporting them in their time of need. When I went there in August, 
There are 112 active outbreaks at the time. So there were that number of facilities that were in a crisis situation and 1,537 active cases of COVID in uh, residential aged care. So it was really a, a challenging situation. And when you think about the residential aged care facility that was impacted by COVID, one of the biggest challenges for them was the, the staff that had to be furloughed. So most facilities had something like 70 to 80% of their staff that were unavailable because they had to go into a quarantine period for 14 days, regardless of whether they were actually showing any symptoms of COVID or not. Uh, they had to go into that quarantine process. So staffing was a crisis issue and ensuring that we were able to care for those residents um, was really critical during that that time. So it was actually really interesting and I had a lot of interactions with management, with staff of those residential aged care facilities and as you said Fee, it was an interesting governance experience because it was crisis management 101 and I saw a range of responses from small facilities that were just you know family owned to large corporate organisations that had multiple facilities across Australia and I have to say that it was it was gobsmacking, some of the responses that we had. There were some uh, facilities where the boards were nowhere to be seen, management was nowhere to be seen, and leadership was a real challenge. And those facilities were left floundering. There were other facilities where the main interest seemed to be around protecting reputation. That was the main concern for the leadership of the organisation. Mm -hmm. Nothing to see here. Everything's under control. Meanwhile, things were imploding. And there were other facilities where the boards and management were front and centre and doing a fabulous job. Really, they're supporting the staff and supporting them uh, going forward to try and, and advocate on behalf of the residents. So it was it, all across the spectrum. Really, really interesting. And Differences between not-for-profit and private weren't huge. We saw some of the not-for-profits that didn't behave so well either, which was quite interesting. We only had one outbreak in public sector residential aged care in Victoria. And I think that was largely due to the level of support that they were able to get from their uh, hospital, their, their auspicing hospital and, and the level of expertise and access to clinical support services that made a real difference. So a lot of lessons learned, reinforced a lot of the things that have come out of the Royal Commission in terms of governance, leadership and clinical governance in particular. But I have to say also saw some amazing dedicated staff, some people that went through some really difficult times, but put the resident front and centre. So that was really reassuring. Incredible. What, what an incredible journey. And thank you, Joanne. It's incredible the things you learned. There's been a lot happening in aged care, but I think it's actually familiar, some of the things you've talked about in all the sectors. And I just wanted to ask you, Julia, to tell us from your broad experience about the intersection between health and aged care and human services and those areas now as well, following on from Joanne's examples of what she experienced. Thanks, V. Thanks, Joanne. I think from my perspective, so I've sat across executive roles and, and I'm a director and a chair advisory boards across health and human services and community and aged care, disability, mental health. And I think 
the same strategic issues for boards are across all, all of those, all that sector. So they transfer. I think the main differences are around the capacity and the capability of the workforce. And that's what impacts here. So you can't necessarily translate the clinical environment of an acute health service onto a disability or an aged care workforce. But I think what COVID has done is really shine a light on all the structural problems that sit across the aged care and disability workforce that could learn something about things like infection control and clinical standards and what have you that come in health and are just standard within a health service. We don't tend to copy those so well in aged care and disability. They are better in mental health, but same, same, but different. And I think what we've got now is a once in a generation opportunity to look at how we deliver much better services for consumers, uh, for the organisations and for our workforces. Because as Joanne said, we've got a crisis in our aged care workforce and in our disability workforce, and it's probably showing up in our health workforce too about the, the numbers and what happens when you have to furlough staff and what happens at the back end when you've got you know different skill sets and capability that they can't necessarily transfer and translate going into a bit of detail underpinning awards actually stop us from being able to flex workforces across the sector between health and community health and human services so I think what we've got is the opportunity to look at new ways of working and what we can retain and change and how we're going to drive innovation and what the future of service delivery and work's going to look like. You know, it was unheard of before last year that we would do things like digital uh, innovation and yet now they're looking at making it permanent that you can um, speak to a GP and have a, a Zoom consult. So there's the opportunity to take the insights from the Royal Commission and really drive change for the long-term positioning for the future. Technology, is that going to be able to connect or is it going to be a disconnect? Because it's complex for some um, of our consumers to actually engage with um, technology, for example. So the ongoing challenge is really going to be understanding how consumers engage with the different services and what their needs are, how we're going to enhance the experience, and more importantly, how we're going to build connectivity across the, the different service lines because there's so much interaction and intersection between them all how we you know how we work across the boundaries and then how we can second staff as we've been able to do in COVID how we can second staff across the entities is going to be really important in the future from a governance point of view so I think what we have seen is that the communities got behind the common purpose around protecting each other, protecting health, putting our workforce resilience and care for critical workforces front and centre and protecting their health and well-being. But it's also democratised a lot about health. It's given access to a lot of people that wouldn't have had it. We've seen homeless being able to access care and in levels that they wouldn't have before in the health system. Family violence has actually had front and centre an awful lot of support and focus and that intersects a lot with mental health and housing and, and into the hospitals. So I think moving forward, how do we protect inclusion? How do we avoid the gendered impacts that we've seen the pandemic bring to the front and centre? And then how do we balance power between those workforces that are in the office and those that work remotely? 
those are the things I think that we are going to see that come out more and more and, and were raised in the Royal Commission, addressed in a whole lot of acts that are coming across the sector, whether it's mental health, aged care, disability. So I think overall my feeling is that the strategic issues are going to be the same for the boards, whether you're working in acute health, community health or social support services. That's really interesting. That's great insight. And, and Michaela, a big welcome to you today. And we're looking forward to working with you in your role at VHA. But to carry on from Julia's point about those similarities for governance across all of those areas, what about your insight to, into that? What, what are some of the similarities you've seen from a governance perspective? Two key areas that I've seen that I think complement what Joanne and Julia have highlighted is professional development. So identifying where there are gaps in skills and knowledge. So one is the position of the board itself, but then also how do you strengthen the experience that's on the board and address any some of those gaps. So it's it's offering professional development specifically for these sectors. There's a, there's a range of different organisations that do exist that do support boards in extending their capacity, but where I think that the ACHG and BHA and, and Governance Evaluator are well placed is to develop offerings that are specifically for our health, our human sector and our human services, I should say, and aged care sectors. The other area that is one that is an issue for a range of different sectors is stakeholder engagement. Mm-hmm. And so it's one, identifying who are your key stakeholders and then how can you meaningfully engage with those stakeholders. Um, so across the health and human services and aged care sectors, they each have their unique challenges in, in, in addressing that as an issue. In, in healthcare world, we refer to them as consumers. What we're starting to see more so is the reference to consumers, communities and carers, which is particularly vital for aged care, recognising who comprises you referring to as community and that also includes staff so for boards to have a better understanding of what stakeholders what their value is in terms of being involved with governance but also recognizing that it's an an important area that needs to be addressed and as I said it's not unique just to the sectors that we're discussing today this is across the board where whatever sector whatever organization you're working in we're recognizing that engaging with our stakeholders in a meaningful way is something that is a challenge that we need to address. It is. I would agree with that entirely. And I'm actually back to you, Joanne, because I'm interested, following on from Julia and Michaela's point and your experience throughout COVID, what's your insights into these governance things that are actually familiar in all of the different areas? Look, I think the organisations in aged care that coped and performed better during the crisis were the ones that were agile and learning. So where the boards were actively engaged and looking at what was happening in the environment and making sure that they were uh, very risk aware. And I noticed that there's a a question in the chat about did we look at risk registers? No, we didn't that level of detail that we certainly didn't have the capability to do that. But the organisations that were responding best to COVID were the ones that were actively testing their risk responses. So we did some debriefing with organisations and and some of the board uh, chairs and board members attended those debriefings. And this happened late last year and early this year after the, the wave of the crisis had passed. And many of them were saying that we thought we were prepared 
We thought that we had a good COVID response plan. We thought that we were under control. But when things really got bad, we realised that our, our planning wasn't up to date. And I think that shows that when you're in a crisis situation, you have to constantly be reviewing, reframing, looking at the adequacy of your responses. COVID was a, an evolving situation. We were learning more and more about the virus as the wave unfolded and understanding more and more about what worked and what didn't. So I think it's really important that boards support organisations to be agile and to be constantly reviewing their response to those kind of risks so that they can adapt to the ever-changing environment that was very, very challenging for organisations to act quickly during that COVID crisis. And actually, Joanne, just to follow on from that, there's another question around the data. I mean, boards were meant to be agile, making decisions, but whether it was governance data or quality data, how did how did people go getting that? Was that, it, look, that, that was, well? Yeah, that was exceedingly challenging. And particularly in the early stages of the second wave, we didn't have access to good data. We didn't get timely data coming through because we were, I hate to use the analogy of building the plane as we were flying it, but we really were trying to understand what was going on in the midst of this incredibly active period. So we were building data systems as we went. When I first went into the Victorian Aged Care Response Centre, our database was a whiteboard and pens, but we ultimately built a data system and we were then providing data to organisations so they could have some visibility about where things were going. But I, I did notice in that question that around the quality of the data in aged care, I think we're still improving our data systems to get reasonable quality indicators in aged care. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, particularly in terms of getting information up to a board level so that they can get that visibility and understand what's going on. But it's very, very much a work in progress. And one of the, the big challenges that we had, which I sort of haven't touched on yet, is balancing the needs of the resident with the needs of managing the pandemic because some of the some of the requirements in terms of making sure that we were controlling the spread of the virus were actually quite challenging for an aged care facility to be able to implement sensitively. So, for example, isolating residents from each other so that they were quarantined and not going to be spreading the virus or picking up the virus, which meant that some residents were in isolation for months if there was an active outbreak, which is a heartbreaking situation for a resident and for families. And we saw some really inventive facilities that were actually taking lifestyle activities into the, the residents' rooms yeah. and, and supporting them that way. They became very quickly adapted to technology and organising Facebook and Zoom meetings with family members, our Zoom activities in the residential care facility, which made a huge difference. But it was allowing those facilities to be innovative and to think about how they could manage the residents' needs in the midst of a crisis, which was, was really important. So, Julia or Michaela, have you had experience with these data requirements at a governance level? And also, I think Joanne's talking almost about infrastructure yeah. and, and how that's impacted. I'm happy to talk to that, Fee. Yes. So... Across the, I, I guess I've engaged with three organisations across COVID that have had some significant 
you know, impacts. And one was mental health, one was family violence, and one was community health. And it's true to say that the the data or access to data is not fantastic in these organisations because it hasn't been the investment or the funding, I suppose, to invest in the technology or the infrastructure. So what you get is people managing their own unique data sets and you can't analyse trends across the organisation. It's too siloed and fragmented. And one of the most important things I think a board can do is invest in a, a piece of technology that enables you to actually integrate your data, especially when it's things like funding models or, or quality um, indicators. So that you're actually getting a whole picture that you can use to make the decisions on. And that has meant in those organisations feedback into clinical safety has been really fast in in, in mental health that's the one I experienced data coming through in family violence around numbers and and critical risks and I suppose signs and symptoms meant that we changed very fast around service delivery so it became perpetrator-led rather than victim-led response and then in community health it's easy to have a financial drain really fast when you've got the sort of cost of clinical response like we had in COVID so understanding what your financial position is and what the key focus has to be on where you spend your money and what on meant that we actually took ourselves from a deficit position to a surplus position across 12 months which was really important yeah that's amazing. You can't, you can't miss a good crisis, see? You mustn't waste a good crisis. Yeah. And Michaela, from your perspective, what were your insights around data and infrastructure? More so from, from infrastructure when, mm. we, when we meet with our members. It's balancing the need for focusing on operational procedures, on delivering services with the building that, that it's actually being delivered yeah. from and being able to balance those priority areas that must be rebuilt or redesigned so that they do meet quality standards. But then, you know, you've got other parts of the building that are literally falling apart that are an actual risk to staff. So it's, I think it, the real challenge here is you've got X amount of dollars, where do you spend it? And of course, your operations will take priority all the time, but you can't ignore the infrastructure that it's in either. And Joanne's got some really interesting stories with aged care where it just the the, the way that the design of the infrastructure was, was either an enabler or a barrier to being able to comply with quality standards. And that's across the board with health services as well, be it community health or a big metro hospital or a regional one. And it's not only in terms of crisis, it's being able to respond to our evolving needs. So there's stories about hallways not being wide enough for larger trolleys now that are needed because people are larger or awards that are purposely built for children, for example. So just the infrastructure, how it can impact people's health and well-being, access to greenery. So new builds that we're seeing are better understanding of how infrastructure can impact on people's health and well-being, but it's going to be a constant area that needs to be looked at. Mm-hmm. And if I can just add to that, Michaela, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that we found in um, the aged care COVID crisis was that shared bathrooms and shared bedrooms were a real problem. And that was the first thing that the public health unit addressed as soon as we had an outbreak. 
and we moved people into single rooms and stopped the sharing of bathrooms and we also stopped the use of communal areas and this is going to cause some challenges going forward because there'll definitely be some changes to infection prevention and control standards as a result of COVID for the future and we know from experience that many elderly people actually like a shared bedroom mm. because it's more of a family environment. They get to speak to the person in the neighbouring bed. They look out for each other. Families bond. So to have to move to a single room uh, because that's what's good for infection control rather than that's what you prefer is going to be a real challenge. We also found that residential care facilities that were separated into um, sections or wings or houses seemed to be able to fare much better because they were able to cordon off parts of their facility rather than put the whole of the facility into lockdown. So from a practical perspective, that was more useful, but it it also means it's very difficult to get everybody together and have a, a cohesive environment for all of the residents. So I think there's going to be lots of challenges that we'll be grappling with going forward from an infrastructure perspective and, and how we balance the residents' needs with infection prevention requirements in this new post-COVID world. I think you're right, Joanne. And I think overall, it appears that there really are some big challenges for boards and changes as well. And so that brings me to a really important question I want to ask you all is post-pandemic, post-royal commissions, post all sorts of things, what are boards going to need to focus on from a strategic perspective? Like a lot of boards are doing their strategy right now. And given that we've all agreed today that I think most of our issues are going to be across the board, no matter what kind of sector you're in. Julia, let's start with you. What do you think are some of the key things that boards are going to be focusing on now that we have to be more strategic and set those strategies for the future? What are some of the things you think or have seen mm. people doing? Well, it's interesting, actually, because I'm working in the, one of the building regulators at the moment, which is grappling with the same thing, <laughs> same, <laughs> same issues, but different sectors. And it's fascinating for me to be able to see that two different sectors have got the same strategic issues, which are about putting the community at the centre. So the public or the, the client need the public good at the centre. So strategically for boards, I think, Data is one thing. Having really good data on which to make your decision and understanding how to analyse that at a macro level to identify trends is critical. We've talked about that, so I won't go into it much more. I think you need to understand really clearly what the, the nuances of who's your consumer, who's your client, and design services around that. Because in aged care, it's different to in um, acute health. Your consumer is the elderly person whereas your client is the family. And, and actually understanding how you are reacting and responding and de designing your services to those different segments is really important. And then how you get your best outcomes for um, clients, patients, consumers, rather than our traditional way, which is structured around what's the best way to work in a transactional sense through a service delivery that way. So it's that real effort to um, invest in what consumer-directed care actually looks like 
And that's different in acute health too, in the other sectors. But what I'm seeing is more investment in process mapping through a business, which is important from a governance point of view. Mm. It's not an operational activity. Process mapping actually allows you to look at your value chain through your business and then focus what's actually intersecting with client need and where are you investing effort in the organisation, in the operations of the organisation. And that is really driving resilience, sustainability. And then I guess the other point is how, how relevant is your service delivery when you do that piece of exercise. And then the final um, piece is the impact of the safety culture on governance mm-hmm. in this space. And we've all sort of referenced it. It's that what motivates the people in the workforce to deliver the best and in some of the research I've done previously it was around the leadership the quality of the leadership to in a non-judgmental way receive bad news so that they could feedback that back into service improvement so we've got really effective teams even when they're dealing with some pretty robust staff they have each other's back and they have the support from the leadership group so there's no covering up trying to dodge stuff sweep it under the carpet uh, or not have bad news. So I think that given that boards set the tone, cultural tone in the organisation, it behoves the board to actually pay some really close attention to that safety culture piece and understand what that really looks like in their business and then maintain oversight about things like what the difference is for working remotely versus working in the office because they're really different. And there's going to be a whole lot of things come out around that sense of belonging, what service delivery looks like between the in-office staff and and then the remote workforces. They are very different beasts to manage. And yet we're moving more and more into that hybrid workforce. So I guess we can look back to look forward. And I would expect that what we're going to see is more partnering, a lot more innovation, a lot more customer feedback into the improvement cycle. We're probably going to have more emphasis on linking employees to purpose so that they're not shifting from organisation to organisation, but really connecting to the purpose of the um, place that they're working. And then looking after employee wellbeing and that resilience, because this workforce, whether you're in whichever part of the sector, the health sector you're playing in, I think everybody's pretty fatigued right now. <laughs> Mental health and well-being is going to be a real focus coming forward. Oh, that's so true, Julia. Fantastic. Mm. I find myself writing all those down. <laughs> so great, great tips. Thank you. Yeah. Joanne, I'm really interested because you've got some real insight from what you've just been through. What do we need to be talking about at that strategic planning session? Look, I think it's really critical that all boards revisit their strategic plan to see if it's relevant anymore, see if it needs to be tweaked. The world has changed remarkably in 12 months and being strategic is about responding and looking ahead, looking ahead at what's coming down the pipeline, understanding what's happening in your environment and adapting your process and direction to meet those changes. So I think every board needs to revisit its strategic plan and look at what needs to be tweaked, what needs to be changed in order to to function in this new world and are some of those goals still relevant, particularly in health and aged care because we have 
borne the brunt of most of the COVID activity and the changes. I think what's happening with the Royal Commission, COVID and the experience that we've had, particularly in Victoria, is going to accelerate some of those changes and the reform that's coming down uh, the chain from the Royal Commission. And I think it's really important that aged care boards look at the report from the Royal Commission and consider what it means to them and their organisation and how they need to start taking on board some of the feedback and looking at some of the changes they might need to make in their environment. I think in healthcare, we've seen, just as Julia said, this incredible response. We've got a fatigued workforce. How do we manage that? How do we cope with the rest of the work and the lump of people coming to emergency departments and the catch-up that we're having to do in elective surgery, et cetera, because of the, the hiatus of COVID? I think there's an enormous amount of work there. And I know my personal opinion is that we've had an enormous amount of money thrown at health in the last 12 months, and that will continue for another 12 months. But we are heading into a situation of generational debt from a government perspective, which is unsustainable. So there's going to have to be a reining in of that spending in the not too distant future. And what does that mean to health? I think already boards should be starting to, to look at that trajectory of spending and think about how we can try and manage in a more constrained fiscal environment and what sort of savings and expectations we might expect to see. So I think it's really important for boards to be thinking about that. From a positive perspective, I think that we've worked really innovatively at a board level. I have to say for myself, I was genuinely surprised at how efficient a board meeting could be when it was run entirely on Zoom. And, you know, we've had access to these incredible virtual platforms. We've been able to do all sorts of things without being in person. So how do we take that forward as well? What does that mean to the way we function as a board and how can we use that strategically? I know I catch up for a Zoom coffee with all sorts of people now in terms of networking and getting information and building a rapport with my board colleagues chewing the fat about some of the issues. So I think we need to be thinking strategically from a board perspective about how we might use some of those tools to help us move things forward in a different direction. Absolutely amazing. Really, really good stuff. I hope everyone's taking lots of notes because I certainly am. And Michaela, I'm fascinated to hear from your perspective you understand so many policy directions and there's, there's a lot coming to the boardroom table. So what do you think is going to be important to talk about at that strategic planning or, or just to bring to the boardroom table? I think it's really important for directors to be aware of the context that they're making decisions. Sometimes we're understanding that our role is strategic and not operational. We're focused on our organisation rather than the context that we're in. And in health in particular, it's really important to be aware of what those policy directions are, but also and what they could be in the future as well. So just a couple of things that I jotted down was around that digital health space, being aware of how that's evolving. It dovetails into what Joanne mentioned, if we're talking really specifically in terms of the way that we interface and the example of how we've gone virtual, but then how do we harness what worked and revert back to some of the pre-COVID times. But the practicalities of adjusting policies that don't permit people to, they're not seen as attending a board meeting if it, if they dialed in, they those things need to be changed 
changed. But then just understanding the direction of digitizing our healthcare in terms of telehealth, in terms of our records, but the investment that will be required to do that and the training that will be needed to align with that as well. So that's just digital health in general. There's a new Gender Inequality Act that came into effect, was introduced in Victoria in February last year and came into effect in March this year. And there are some very big obligations that health services are required to meet. All public entities are required to meet in terms of conducting gender audits, you know, um, gender impact assessments, and then developing a gender equality plan. And from what I've seen, this is at a very operational level right now, but it's really the underpinning value is gender equality. So that's a type of example of where boards need to be across that because that relates to what Julia mentioned before in terms of it's a cultural um, issue that's being addressed there. And if it's not being supported at the executive level, well, we have a problem. Climate change is another area that isn't going to go away anytime soon. And it's sometimes easy to forget in Victoria that we came off the back of bushfires and into a pandemic and are recovering from both. And again, bushfires is something in Australia that we're going to have to constantly address, not to mention things like floods and other climate change issues. And how does that impact um, us as a server in terms of our infrastructure, but being able to deliver our services. So it's that preparation in terms of risk, but a term that I heard recently was risk velocity. So what is a risk, but how quickly can it escalate? So being aware of that from a board perspective. And the other one is our new acts that are on on the horizon and obligations that come with that too. So there will be a new Aged Care Act at a national level. In Victoria, there will be a new Mental Health Act. So being aware of the political context that we're working in and speaking of politics, elections that may or may not be coming up and how that may impact the service, but how it can create opportunities as well to enhance your services. Julia mentioned partnering, and I think that's another area that will be really critical, especially in terms of if we're discussing infrastructure. So where we are rebuilding, does it make sense to, to partner with a like organisation for co-located facilities? Will you have a greater likelihood of receiving funding by having the library, the pool and the health services all delivered in the same area? So thinking outside the square of what is actually can be really logical for that endpoint consumer perspective that they are able to um, have access to a number of different services from one point of entry. A couple of other things that I just noted down as well was fatigue has been raised by both Joanne and Julia, but we're seeing that at the executive level as well. So we recognise that our clinicians are of course exhausted, but so are our executive staff. And we're starting to see a lot of retirements, a lot of staff turnover as well, people looking for different lifestyles. So succession planning, and being aware of that importance from a board perspective is really critical too. The last thing that I just wanted to mention as well was professional development. So again, being aware of where your blind spots are and seeking opportunities to be able to fill those gaps, but also with the board, not only in in attracting and and retaining good directors, remuneration is an issue that for -for not-for-profits have historically, if we were to generalise, our volunteer positions. So it's reviewing, is that something that we wish to continue with and what the consequences of that as well. We're seeing a real shift to recognising the time and the value that people are bringing as directors. So the need to revisit that as well. And then again, how is that justifiable when there's salaries are being on hold at the staff level to then discuss that at a governance level? So some real sensitivities there. Amazing, an amazing list. And I was really interested in that piece about director development as well, because I know when I've talked with all of you in the past, a big thing that has become really apparent is it's not just education about governance, it's actually about governance 
in relation to the specific organisation you're working for. So whilst we've all talked a lot today about the similarities across the different cohorts or sectors or whatever you like to call them, I think one of the things I've learned from all of my discussions with you three is that when you're sitting on a health board, you really need to understand about health. Or if you're sitting on a mental health board, you need to understand about mental health. So it's a a really interesting and evolving piece around directors actually not necessarily becoming practitioners or what have you, but actually learning about the top risks related to the sectors that they're in. So I think that's really good. In relation to what you just mentioned then as well, Fee, it's Mm. um, striking that balance of having the right skill mix around the table. Uh, Yeah. Also, that experience of, for example, what you just mentioned, understanding the health sector, but also we're seeing this a lot with our rural and regional health services is striking that balance of having the right skill set, but the local knowledge as well. So it's a balancing act and sometimes it's about prioritising what's the greater need. So you could have the most fantastic skills around the table that really don't know the local needs. And you can also have the opposite of that too, um, where you have people that are absolutely immersed in understanding of the local needs, but don't have the right skill mix to really be able to provide that good strategic direction for the organisation. I I would agree with that. It's really up to the chair to get that real nice balance of community need versus skill set and maybe even structure the board in a slightly different way than we've traditionally done because I've seen more and more move towards bringing in specialist advisors for a project or a topic. And and I think one of the questions we've got in the Q&A is, are we going to see another pandemic off the back of this one? So it might be that we start engaging more with the medical research um, sector or we start looking outside the sector for different ideas about how they're dealing with particular issues. As I said before, I'm involved at the moment with the building regulator and um, cladding cladding safety is a major issue. There's another sector that's completely unrelated to health but is dealing with a public a public um, issue, there will be lots of translatable ideas and thoughts and innovations Mm. that can come from that sector and be imposed onto health. And I think anyone that's looking at things like business continuity and emergency planning and how you make sure that you've got a sustainable, (laughs) a sustainable service that can withstand the buffering that's an operational type thing that a board should be doing and focusing on this year, absolutely, because we don't know what's going to evolve and what's going to come out of this year. I don't, it's not necessarily finished. No, exactly, exactly. And strategic so, risk management, that's what we call it, isn't it? <laughs> no, exactly. Mm. And so, Joanne and Michaela, you've been, well, Michaela in particular, working on some really important resources to support organisations, particularly at a governance level at the moment. And I just wondered if you and Joanne would like to just mention some of the things. Yes, earlier this year, from after consulting with our members, we identified that there was a real need to have a tailored training package available for new, for aspiring and for existing board directors to support their knowledge in terms of some core areas of their professional development, but also to introduce people to the health sector in general. So we've established a board essentials uh, program that we offer six key modules that we encourage everyone to ideally enroll across all six. They are offered virtually 
virtually and we are trialing different times of the day and different days from mornings through to afternoons and there'll be nights as well. People have the option to to register for just one of those sessions. We start off with an introduction to Victoria's healthcare system. We move on to corporate governance, which really looks at the the role of the board. Then we look at clinical governance, as well as risk, finance, and partnering with consumers, which is a requirement, but also, again, a real risk area for not only health, but for other sectors across the board. And so we've been having some really interesting uptakes in in this new offering where um, we've been selling out the sessions, but also are having requests for um, training specifically for a board. What's really um, been interesting to observe has been where it's established directors that are choosing to come along to these sessions and I think it's a little bit off you don't know what you don't know so once you've been in your role for you know one two years maybe even longer you realize that you want a bit of a refresher in particular areas or that you might have some gaps that you weren't aware of it's a really great opportunity there for established directors as well as people that just are thinking about joining a board as well as ones that have just taken up a new appointment so that's an established board essentials training package that we do have available but joanne in particular leads a bespoke training where we can work with individual organizations to tailor some of these identified suite of um, training packages or otherwise develop one specifically off the back of working with you fee and your team to address some of the skill gaps that might be there really important the clinical governance area at the moment because the uh, Royal Commission has highlighted clinical governance as being a priority for improvement in the aged care sector. And we know that it's been on the agenda in healthcare for quite some time in the wake of the Targeting Zero review. I think all boards need to remember in healthcare and in aged care that the board is ultimately responsible for the quality of care that is provided to the people that come to their organisation. So whether you're a patient or a resident, the board is ultimately responsible for the quality of care. And there are some serious concerns that boards have not been taking that responsibility as highly as they need to, particularly in aged care. That's been highlighted in the Royal Commission. And I know that there's a concern about St Basil's, for example, that there is a potential for those individual directors to be held liable for the quality and safety um, of care issues that came about as a result of uh, the pandemic at St Basil's. So it is a director's duty to ensure safe, high quality care and clinical governance is a key part of that. So I would encourage any director who is on the board of a healthcare or an aged care organisation to look at what their clinical governance training needs might be, because it's just as important as understanding the financial papers. It's just as important as understanding your legal obligations. You need to be fully aware of what your clinical governance obligations are also. No, that's that's absolutely, it's so important, isn't it, Joanne? And but also I think even across community organisations as well, Julia and Michaela, you probably agree that it, it's, it's that quality governance. It's not the acute clinical governance, Joanne, but it's definitely that community quality governance because they're still doing an awful lot of services and approaches that require a, a clinical kind of approach, particularly as Julia was talking about earlier, the services that are delivered outside of the organisations are actually delivered in people's homes. 
Mm. Um, so it's it's understanding at all of those different levels, how does clinical governance apply to me? It's quite difficult, isn't it? Mm. It's very nuanced and you need to understand not only the client journey through your health service, but the parlance is the voice of the client. So you, depending on your service, it might be that your client is, as I said before, your client is the family member, the consumer is the person receiving the health care. They're different, but they're both involved. So it's having that sort of understanding about what you are being deliberate about what you're asking for and the outcome that you're going to use that information for it's not just a tick in the box activity it's actually to drive change or drive improvement in the past it's sort of been let's run a survey just to say that we've done it so that we can pass our accreditation I think that's gonna <laughs> it's not gonna foot it anymore <laughs> it comes back to what we were talking about before understanding the context that you're making your decisions as well so there's a real shift and growing recognition of care in the community so then it's thinking about your clinical governance and how you can do it outside your walls which is another area that directors should be aware of mm. Michaela it's a very good point that you bring up because when we work with organisations to review their standard eight, one of the biggest areas that's becoming are not met, we've been informed about, is actually understanding what are the clinical governance responsibilities with the services that you bring in to provide your organisation services, even as far as the people who you outsource people to carry your clients around on buses and what have you. So how does that anything to do with that clinical governance translate across all areas of your services, really? It's complicated. And but then it's sort of got to be seen as um, part of those, coming back to the point I made earlier, it's got to be seen as a strategic risk inside of strategic risk strategy because clinical safety and governance is one thing. But we've had situations in Victoria, I remember um, back in the day with Bacchus Marsh, with all the deaths of babies that weren't picked up for a long time. Those gathering data and understanding trend over time, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've just got to focus on the narrow confines of a pandemic, but actually what has the pandemic taught us that we haven't learned before because it hasn't affected so many people or so many organisations. And yet managing strategic risk through a pandemic is similar to what happened in Bacchus March, to what might happen if, you know, you have a mass flooding or a fire or something like that happen. So it's a part about integrating your data and your systems to drive improvement and thinking ahead what might be impacting service delivery, operational effectiveness, your financial sustainability, all those good things. No, exactly. Mm. So it's been a fantastic opportunity today to chat with you all. It's been great to hear about aged care and also the similarities across health, human services and really good tips about what to think about at our strategic planning moving forward. And I have to tell you, from a perspective of working with boards and, and doing their evaluations, having this opportunity for specific education that VHA has got is, is an absolute winner because the directors don't just want to learn about governance, they want to learn about it in the context of their own sector that they're in. But I'd love to just finish up today with a little tip from each of you 
what do you think is one or two top things to focus on in relation to the state of governance moving forward? And then I'm going to give everybody a little hint about what are we going to talk about next time when we all get together? So, Joanne, let's start with you. What, what's a take-home message from you today with all of your most recent amazing experiences? Look, for me, I think the most important thing is for board directors to be aware of what's going on in their sector and to look beyond just attending a board meeting. And your uh, role as a director is not just confined to a board meeting. You should be out and about getting information, having conversations with people. And events like this are really useful to, to get you thinking. But I would encourage board directors to speak to their other colleagues about what's going on, have conversations with them, connect with board directors that are on a neighbouring hospital or a neighbouring aged care organisation, have those conversations be constantly listening, thinking and talking about what's going on in your sector because that's going to help you make well-informed decisions and that's going to help you uh, build a successful strategy. Fantastic. Great tip. Thank you. Julia, what about for you? Have you got a tip for us? <laughs> I'd build on what Joanne just said, but I, what I'm doing um, with my board practice is actually looking at adjunct sectors so what are they doing that might solve the problems that I'm you know seeing in my board roles how can another sector solve my problems fantastic great advice and um, makes it more interesting too let's finish with you what's a tip from you today well, really is it's about what I refer to as looking up. So looking outside of your health service and being aware of what the context is of where you're making your decisions. So, you know, Joanne mentioned the health sector. Julia mentioned other like-minded organisations or other sectors in general that you could benefit from. But I'd also think in terms of the people that you are delivering services to. And especially when you're starting to think about the future, it's projecting who those people might be because they not, might not even exist yet. So part Partnering with organisations like primary health networks or local government can give you really valuable data in terms of population projections, in terms of the demographic you could be dealing with in 10 years' time. So when you are investing in infrastructure, think about those generations um, that you'll be dealing with in 20, 30 years' time, not just what the need is right now. So that would be my main tip there. That's terrific. Thank you. So everybody, I just want to sincerely thank you, Michaela, Julia and Joanne. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've found this talk fascinating today and, and I've had the privilege of catching up with you all. I'm sure everybody has found it absolutely so helpful. We've all agreed that we should make this a regular catch-up and I think there were so many things that we all wanted to talk about and we sort of started to touch on today that I think would be fabulous for when we next catch up. In particular, people are really interested in what are the kind of indicators that boards need to have and a lot more interest um, in data and how is data helping us manage risk. And, of course, there was a, a key risk that we didn't have a lot of time to talk about today, but I think we will next time. And that is that real tension that's coming between the notion of choice or our beautiful consumers' um, preferences versus our knowledge about what is safety and, and safe practice. So we sincerely look forward to catching up with you again and, and thank you very much for your amazing insights 
and discussions today. And thank you very much, everybody, for coming. <laughs>